Last summer, as the killing of George Floyd and the cry of Black Lives Matter echoed around the world, protests broke out in cities across the UK. The government was caught off guard as ministers came under fire for their comments about statues and taking the knee. Boris Johnson launched a review on race in the hope that it would bring the country together. We need to start telling that story uh, and building up a culture of high expectations, of a narrative about success, as well as stamping out the, the racism and the, and the discrimination that unquestionably exists. But when the Race and Ethnic Disparities report was published at the end of March, rather than calming tensions, it only seemed to inflame them again. A government-commissioned report is described as irresponsible, as immoral, that people were flabbergasted by it, that it was gaslighting. It couldn't be more heartbreaking, that, that opportunity shockingly lost. It's already become the most controversial government report in a generation, with a long line of high-profile and respected academics now calling for it to be revoked and questioning the integrity of its findings. It has used outdated references and data, and in some instances it has misrepresented or misinterpreted data. There's been a heated debate since the report was published. In this episode, we're hoping to cast some light on the issue by looking more closely at some of the claims made by the Commission. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Britain's race report... What went wrong? Being hit by racism repeatedly in the various stages of my life, I would argue would wear a lot of people down. That's Simon Woolley. Lord Woolley of Woodford. He's the director of an organisation that seeks racial justice, Operation Black Vote, and until July last year, he was also chair of the Downing Street Race Disparity Unit. He's just been appointed the principal of Homerton College, Cambridge, making him the first black man to head an Oxbridge college. Don't get mad, get even, has been my mantra for a long time. Simon first got a call from Theresa May's team about 10 years ago, while she was still Home Secretary. They were worried about stop and search. And I explained that policing could be better, but whilst there was a dragnet approach that assumed that many young black men were guilty and stopped and searched them, harassed and humiliated, uh, that you would never catch the criminals you wanted to catch because there was no trust. I have just been to Buckingham Palace, where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government, and I accepted. When Theresa May became Prime Minister... Her very first speech, delivered outside the door of Number 10, made it clear that tackling racial inequalities would be a key priority. That means fighting against the burning injustice, that if you're born poor, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. If you're black, you're treated more harshly by the criminal justice system than if you're white. Here was a Conservative Home Secretary and Prime Minister who had said to me, and others through deaths in police custody, I believe you, I believe you, and I see these injustices, and we must change. 
And so, in 2016, the Race Disparity Unit was born. It worked out of the Cabinet Office and, two years later, Lord Woolley became chair of the unit's advisory group. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe my luck. I'm particularly coming from a Conservative government who black people don't ordinarily vote for. It was a truly moment in history. But as the months unfolded, with the toxic politics of Brexit and the Windrush scandal with Theresa May at its centre, the momentum for tackling racial injustices ebbed away. It become like pushing a boulder uphill. So how did we go from a prime minister pledging to fight the burning injustices of institutional racism in 2016 to now? In 2021, another Conservative government publishing a report which claims institutional racism doesn't even exist in the UK. This report has sought to catapult us back to my childhood in the 70s and 80s that say systemic racism doesn't exist. And there is only the thug, the abuser that we have to deal with. It couldn't be more heartbreaking that that opportunity shockingly lost. When Boris Johnson launched the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, headed by Dr Tony Sewell to produce the report, there was an outcry. There had already been a number of race reports, which had made a total of more than 200 policy recommendations, which still hadn't been implemented. We had the Scarman report back in the 80s, and then the groundbreaking McPherson report. The McPherson report, oh my gosh. The McPherson report, chaired by the former High Court judge Sir William McPherson, was launched four years after the murder of Stephen Lawrence by a group of white youths. It was damning. It found the investigation into the murder was marred by a number of factors, including institutional racism. It was a watershed report. He listened and he accepted what he heard and then said, in our society, we have systemic racism and we have to listen to the lived experiences of those communities that are acutely faced by it. There was a symbolic moment, above all, which is most special. Because imagine for decades being punched in the face and then someone said, I didn't punch you. And then when you've proven they did, they say, well, it didn't hurt. <laughs> I didn't insult to injury. And then someone saying, I do believe you. That cathartic moment to be believed, I cannot underestimate. I cannot tell you how meaningful that is, just to be believed. And then, of course, there's directives to every public institution in the country to demonstrate how they are changing to close inequality gaps. Public sector equality duty, every policy had to be seen through a lens of race. After that landmark report, as the years rolled on and inequalities persisted, a myriad of reviews followed, which showed the impact of race on inequality in Britain. The Timson Review to School Exclusions, the Children's Commission, Best Beginnings in Early Years, the McGregor Review, the Parker Review, the Lamia Review, the Marmot Review, the Wesley Review, all reviews that said something systemic is going on in which the outcomes are shockingly negative to black, Asian and minority ethnic communities with a whole raft of recommendations. Many of these reports were based on years of data gathering and analysis. 
One report from Nuffield College, Oxford, for example, showed that some minorities had to send out 80% more applications than a white person in order to find a job. Although the Sewell report adopted some of the recommendations from earlier reports, its conclusions couldn't be more different. Now, think about this for a second. This group of individuals for the Race Disparity Commission have read, so they say, all these reviews, primary research into race inequality, have read them all, have done no primary research themselves, and have come to the conclusion that institutional racism, from the evidence that they've seen, no longer exists. I mean, it beggars belief that you can read those reports and tilt towards nothing systemic. And it's back to that punch on the nose again. We haven't punched you. And if we did, it doesn't hurt. The Sewell report made 24 recommendations, some of which have been welcomed across the political spectrum. For example, the report criticises the use of the term BAME, or Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, as a way to clump together people who have very different experiences. But it's the report's insistence, repeated by its lead author, Dr Tony Sewell, that institutional racism doesn't exist in Britain that has proved to be violently divisive and incredibly controversial. People are just going around declaring institutional racism. The report states that there are no obvious signs of institutionalized racism. That statement in itself is a contradiction. Here's a quote from the report. The term is now being liberally used and often to describe any circumstances in which differences in outcomes between racial and ethnic groups exist in an institution without evidence to support such claims. The Commission, therefore, feels that misapplying the term racism has diluted its credibility and thus undermined the seriousness of racism where it does exist in contemporary Britain. It gets people mad for a number of reasons. One, it goes against all the evidence. That's Professor Kyan D. Andrews, author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. He says it's important to go back to the definition of institutional racism. Well, the term actually comes from Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton, who wrote a book in the 60s called Black Power. And the whole purpose of it was to, was to distinguish between individual prejudice. So, you know, people don't like black and brown people and they make that very clear. But to distinguish that from racialized outcomes. The report tries to draw a distinction between institutional racism, systemic racism, structural racism, just lists a lot of random things as though they're different. But actually the argument behind institutional racism is that there is a way that society is structured that means that when we see all these things in healthcare, in education, etc., that's not a coincidence. It doesn't need to have somebody being individually prejudiced. So, for example, the book pointed to the disparity between mortality rates for black babies compared to those who are white. It was written in the 1960s, but even today, in modern Britain, black women are four times more likely to die in childbirth. That doesn't mean the doctors treating them are racist, necessarily, more that society is structured in a way that poverty, access to healthcare and a number of other factors are still stacked against black women. And the report essentially just completely misrepresents what institutional racism is. Their justification appears to be that it's not, they couldn't find any evidence that there was witting racism, or that there was an attempt to make this happen. But that was the whole reason why this term came about. 
Another major issue addressed by the report over the course of 30-odd pages is the relationship between race and health. It's a subject that was brought into sharp relief by the higher rate of COVID deaths amongst ethnic minorities. I couldn't believe it. I thought that it was really poorly done. That's Dr. Mohamed Razai. I am an academic clinical fellow at St. George's University of London, and I'm also a working clinician. In the week following the release of the Sewell report, Dr. Razai co-authored an article for the British Medical Journal, a weekly peer-reviewed journal published by the British Medical Association. The article was scathing about the findings of the race report. It looks like the authors had the conclusions written first and then they were trying to find any evidence to support these conclusions regardless of the quality, date or peer-reviewed status of the papers or sources. There are serious methodological flaws that would not be acceptable uh, for a student project, for example. It has used outdated references and data unpublished, non-peer-reviewed papers, and in some instances it has misrepresented or misinterpreted data. The Sewell Report on Race and Ethnic Disparities cited, as evidence, the conclusions of the Marmot Review, which was published more than a decade ago, in 2010. The review, led by Sir Michael Marmot, looked at strategies for reducing health inequalities in England. Here's what the Sewell Report said about it. The commissioners considered the Marmot Review as part of their investigation into this area, as this report is a seminal examination of the so-called gradient in health, which links levels of health to social class and status. The Marmot Review did find variations in ethnic minorities. However, it did not answer why the social determinants of health are unequally distributed between different racial and ethnic groups. Dr. Razai has read the Marmot Review. In 2010, Sir Michael Marmot and his group at University College London gathered to find inequalities in health in general. At the time, they found that most of the inequalities in England could be explained by socioeconomic status. And they didn't investigate very much about the ethnicity and the role of systemic factors that would define people's socioeconomic status. But in 2020... Sir Michael Marmot did a significant review of his earlier report. There he said that he has come to a different conclusion, which is that intersections of race, racism, ethnicity and socioeconomic status intensify health inequalities and ethnic minorities. The other issue is that his most recent work on around COVID clearly mentions that the evidence is very clear that broad, powerful structural factors, and he mentions systemic racism, structural racism, as a very powerful force in determining the so-called social determinants of health. But the Sewell report only cites Marmot's earlier work from a decade ago, not the most recent revised version of the review. Sir Michael Marmot has complained and criticised the shortcomings in the Commission's approach. It's not that the Commission did not have access to these reports. They were published well before the Commission wrote their report and made their conclusions. What were the other flaws with the report as far as you were concerned? For example, it mentions on the issue of life expectancy. 
Here's how the Race and Ethnic Disparities Commission addressed the issue in the report. Also, if it were true that Black and South Asian groups were suffering from systemic racism throughout their lives, adversely affecting their health, education, income, housing and employment, this would be reflected in overall mortality figures across the life course. In fact, Black and Asian groups have had lower mortality rates from all causes and data for Scotland suggests Asian ethnic groups have higher life expectancy than white ethnic groups. There are two problems with this. One is that this report that they cite from Scotland is a very old study. It's a very short report. And the authors of that report clearly mention serious weaknesses with the study in a way to caution people to draw very severe conclusions. But even if we assume that that study was robust and the conclusions were absolutely fine, citing one study in support of the conclusion the life expectancy improving for ethnic minorities and is better than the white majority population would not be acceptable in any rigorous scientific literature. There's also another problem with only citing that one study from Scotland. It's not just that it's old and the data may have changed, but also only about 3% of ethnic minorities in the UK actually live north of the border. In Marmot Review, there are clear examples of studies that have been done that show lower life expectancy among ethnic minorities, but none of those are cited in the report. We don't expect the report to say that ethnic minorities have the poorest life expectancy or something like that, and evidence is conclusive. Of course not. When you write a report of this significance, where it will have huge ramifications for government policy, you must be able to critically evaluate and critically analyse, systematically go through the literature and cite their weaknesses, their strengths, and then you can come to reasoned conclusions based on that. That's how the scientific methodology works. The Sewell report also claims that ethnic minorities have lower mortality rates for certain conditions. And in support of this, they cite a paper that is neither published nor peer-reviewed, which is fair enough, but for a report of this significance, all due care must be taken not to overstate mm. significance and also to mention the reports that we are citing is actually not published or peer-reviewed yet. And it doesn't do that? No. We'll continue our look at the race report in just a moment. For more remarkable stories and in-depth analysis every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Join today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The recent report by the Race and Ethnic Disparities Commission, chaired by Dr. Tony Sewell, also looks at COVID death rates. I've actually got a quote from him. The disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on some ethnic groups is partly explained by the prevalence of ethnic minorities who work on the front line and provide unpaid care in multi-generational households. You could also add to that living in inner cities, etc. That's Professor Kyan D. Andrews again, who's waded through the detail of the report. And they take a net to say, well, this actually isn't about race, this is about geography and other things. But... You can't really explain why it is that ethnic minorities tend to live in, in inner city, overcrowded, multi-generational households, or why it is that ethnic minorities tend to be working on the front line in quite low-paid work without racism. So it says this is more about class or geography without understanding that both class and geography will have a race element to them. Yeah, but not just a race element. I mean, the geography in particular. Why is it that half of all black people who live in London, the vast majority of ethnic minorities live in the inner city? That's historically because that was where we were allowed to live, like you couldn't live anywhere else, right? Because of very clear racial prejudice, not just racial, individual prejudice of homeowners, but also local councils, for instance. In Birmingham, where I live, there was a very clear, you know, you will be housed in this particular part of the city, etc. And then that has an intergenerational effect where, you know, even someone like myself, who's now is a high earner, but because of white flight from the neighbourhood where I grew up in, it's now predominantly black and brown. And what that does is it drives the house price down. So even though I have money, I don't really have any wealth. And actually, that's one of the things that the report kind of overlooks, or not entirely overlooks, it does mention it. But the intergenerational wealth gap is so glaring between all minorities. Even if I wanted to go and live in a nice white area, I frankly can't afford it, right? And that is because of the histories and the way that works out in the present of race. So the idea that geography is, is somehow not racial is this complete fantasy. But that's what the report does, right? It's, it, it, it's, and, I, and I'm saying this very clearly. This is not by accident. This is by purpose. If you look through the report, there's a kind of cherry-picking and misrepresentation of things to make this argument that this isn't really about institutional racism. I mean, one of the arguments the report puts forward is that if you look at outcomes for white working-class children, they're often worse than for people of colour. So, you know, that's one of the arguments why they think institutional racism isn't a thing, I suppose. Firstly, this, again, intersections of class are, are important. I, we live in a capitalist society. Poor white people have been doing badly for a while. Like, this is not a new thing. Again, if you look at this statistics, this is not new. This you'll find that poor white people have not been doing very well, but again, not really that surprising. But it's a, it's a real misrepresentation because how you actually measure this in schools isn't class. It is access to free school meals, 
which is just not a good measure for class. It's not that straightforward. It is, it's, it's a kind of proxy that they have to use, which gets overblown for a number of reasons. I mean, one of those would be, if I actually look at this data, and these, again, these figures are in the report, so it's not like they haven't seen them, they just kind of ignored them. If you are from an ethnic minority background, you're more likely to be on free school meals. So the report actually says this, 14% of white families, 28% of black Caribbean families are on free school meals. We take the lowest 14% of white families and then 28% of, of black Caribbean families. Can't really compare. I mean, to compare those two groups as an academic is, is, is madness because they're clearly different groups. And if you look at the group of 28% of black Caribbean families who are on free school meals, you're going to find because of racism, there's lots of families in there who have high cultural capital, who may have degrees, who may have lots of the other stuff you would expect, but because of racism can't get better jobs and therefore are on lower incomes, etc. You're not comparing like for like, basically. If you were to compare the bottom 14% of black Caribbean households and the bottom 14% of, of white households, I would strongly imagine, given all the other indicators, that you would find that black Caribbeans are doing worse. But we don't have that measure. So we've taken this one thing, extrapolated it, and said this shows it's not about racism, which is not true at all. In the past, from the McPherson report onwards, a number of reviews have looked at the role of race in the British justice system. It's a subject that was addressed by this latest race report too. This is one area where I would have thought it was impossible to misrepresent the data because the data is so bad. Like, it's so bad if you look at stop and search rates, if you look at half of all young offenders are from an ethnic minority, which is literally insane. Here, there's a kind of obfuscation of the data. They basically say that more white people are stopped than the non-white people, which you kind of expect given that most people in the country are white. They actually acknowledge that you're far more likely, like one in two, 50% of white people who were stopped were arrested compared to only one in five black people who were stopped being arrested. White people are over twice as likely to be arrested as a result of stop and search. And in the same breath, say that black people are more likely to be stopped, right? So are more likely to be stopped and searched, but far less likely to actually be arrested which I would have thought is pretty good evidence to suggest that stop and search is clearly a racist, it's yeah, something racist. I mean, that's so surprising. You're right, but this is a, none of that's mentioned in the report. They kind of just move on to other things, which is... But the data in the report does support that. Oh, yeah, completely. They just don't, uh, they don't acknowledge it. They just it. don't acknowledge So the data's there, telling us a story that we should be talking about, but they just kind of skip and move yeah. on from it. I mean, that's amazing. So, so the data, indisputably, they would agree with this because they've published it, shows more black people being stopped, but actually far fewer actually being arrested, which does imply... It really implies quite strongly. Something has gone very wrong. Something's gone quite wrong, right? But then the recommendation is from the report that we just need to have more trust in the police. No, I think there's a problem with the police, right? I think this is actually telling you the sort of wrong with how the police are working. But those conclusions aren't drawn in the report. I guess the overall picture that they, they paint is that compared to their childhood, you know, back in the 70s or so, when there was always a danger of skinheads and people from the National Front, that actually as a country we really have moved on and, you know, you don't get race attacks in the same way. Would you agree with that conclusion? That is certainly true, but this is again is a problem with the report. And especially because the report does very clearly say we need to be clear about terminology and we need to make sure we're talking about the right thing. And what this report has done and what not just this report, because I think generally the race relations industry, if you want to call it that, has generally done is to confuse individual prejudice with racism. So there is no doubt that mm. individual prejudice has declined. Like my, the stories my mum will tell me about being chased, the skinheads down the road, etc. I mean, like when I grew up, we did have NF signs, but I didn't really know what they meant. If you don't know either, NF is short for the National Front, a far-right, fascist political movement 
here in the UK. And I generally thought it meant uh, new flowers when I saw NF and an arrow. Uh, that was kind of my generation. Like we just, I, I don't experience any, right? But the issue is that isn't institutional racism. I mean, really importantly, that was the whole purpose of the concept of institutional racism was to say that, yes, individual prejudice might decline, but if you actually look at how you go through these institutions and what the outcome is, that's what we should really be focusing on. And if you actually look at all the evidence they're giving us, if you go through this report, it's actually on that level, it's quite good because it's quite a good overview of just how terrible the situation is. In terms of progress towards actual equality, and actual equality here simply just means that we, you wouldn't have all these disparities, right? There hasn't really been any, not much at all, really. Some people have done well enough, but generally we haven't made anywhere near as much progress as we would like to think. I mean, most of us will come from a, a slightly non, you know, like... We haven't been in the world of academia for a while. So, I mean, if you, in the simplest way you can, explain how the data, for example, is being used in a way that you, you wouldn't normally see in an academic piece. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. For undergraduate degree level, this would fail. Really? No, no, no really, no, really. It really wouldn't. This is not, and I want to stress that. I, I, this isn't about me disagreeing with it. I don't agree with it, but it's just also a bad piece of work. Is there consensus in, in the world of academia about this? I haven't heard an academic come out and say this is, this is a good piece of work. The controversy around the report has not only focused on its findings, but also on the people who put it together. Munira Mirza, the Downing Street advisor tasked with setting up the commission, and the man she chose to lead it, Dr Tony Sewell. Both have been quoted in the past denying the existence of structural racism. I mean, there was lots of criticism of this report before it came out. We 100% knew this is what was going to happen. Basically, if you ask institutional racism deniers whether institutional racism exists, they're going to say no, right? And that was always the purpose of the report. Dr Tony Sewell, in particular, has been the victim of vicious online abuse ever since the report was published. But many believe he and Munira Mirza were the wrong people to investigate racial inequalities in Britain. During his time as the chair of the Number 10 Race Disparity Unit, Lord Woolley worked with both of them. I know them both, and I know that they have, my view is that they have a vision of the world. This is not just speculation. Manira Mirza said, the more you talk about racism, the more racism will occur. Well, on that we profoundly disagree. I would often say to them both that we want the same goals, but your denial of structural racism will never get us there because it becomes the elephant in the room which continually delivers negative outcomes for our communities. And there'll always be the exception to the rule. I'm the exception to the rule, having been given the wonderful opportunity to head up an Oxbridge College, the first black man to do so. I'm immensely proud, but I don't think for a second, because I've been elected this role, that all is well in higher education in regards to race, the systems. We need concerted efforts to acknowledge and then collectively tackle these systems. We all benefit by tearing down these obstacles. I saw this as the greatest opportunity in British history to do so. And it has almost had the opposite effect. Last summer, as the Black Lives Matter protests swept the country with historic statues under threat, the Prime Minister announced the launch of the Race and Ethnic Disparities Commission. When Boris Johnson launched this commission inquiry, the die was firmly set when he said, 
What we have to do in the weeks and months ahead is change the narrative. And we have to stop this victimhood mentality. And these, were, these are words straight out of the Manira Mirza and Tony Saul handbook, frankly. And our response to it was crystal clear. You change the narrative by changing the systems that keep delivering these negative outcomes. If you change the narrative without the systems, then you're in denial. You're putting a band-aid over a gaping wound. Think even worse than that, that I've seen prominent black people in government positions and as advisors, in many ways weaponizing race. So when the evidence suggests it's institutional, these black and brown powerful people say, no, no, there isn't. They may be a tiny minority, and yet they drowned out in newspapers the heartfelt majority. And they send us into, I think, what some have described as a culture war, which we don't want. We don't want to be arguing whether there's institutional racism. We want to be arguing is how do we, how do we tear down those obstacles? Some people have said to me with heavy hearts that it seems to them now there are black and brown people fronting white racism. That's how bad they think it's got. Because let's be clear about this, that if this report that was delivered last week was delivered by a group of white people, many would scream that they are racist. Not least because there's a passage in the report that seems to say that in spite of the dreadful things about slavery, there are some positive aspects. Whilst making this episode, we contacted the Cabinet Office for an interview with Dr Tony Sewell or any of the commissioners responsible for the report. We were told none were available. Is there a danger that for some people it will give their own opinions sort of an air of, of legitimacy? It sort of says, we looked at race and now look, it's, it's clearly sorted. That's happened. I mean, I can see that happening. The amount of tweets I've had saying, oh, there's no racism anymore, you're going to lose your job. This certainly has emboldened people who don't believe that there is racism. Whatever the report said, that wasn't really going to shift. That's Professor Kyan D. Andrews again, who's waded through the detail of the report. If I'm 100% honest, I, I just think that this retrenches what people thought before. If you, if you didn't believe racism existed before, you, you don't now. And if you did, you're really angry. Do you think it'll change the national conversation around race? I've actually come around to think this is actually a good thing. I mean, honestly, the, the report's terrible. There's a large consensus that it's terrible. And I think the conversation that's been uh, prompted because of that really has put race back on the agenda again. And with there's a lot of pressure again. And I think that has to be a good thing. We have government reports about these things all the time. The last thing we really needed was a report. I mean, in all honesty, we had reports about this. We kind of know the problem, and the question now is what do we do? If I compare it to the McPherson report, so the McPherson report, which does actually talk about institutional racism, does lead to changes in legislation and race equality. The idea that institutions should take responsibility for institutional racism. Actually, that was worse, actually, because what did that do? That named the problem, but named it in a way that was really not institutional racism, created an industry of equality, diversity, etc., created a framework of the law which is frankly awful and doesn't address racial equality at all, and made everybody a little bit complacent. At least with this report, it's so bad that we understand the government is not on our side and that we need much more structural change. If we're not addressing the root causes of the problem, then we're not going to make any headway. For Dr. Mohammed Razai, the real dangers of the report lie in the way it might be used to form policy. 
it will certainly have serious consequences in the long run. Uh, it will not address the problem and it will make things worse because we ignore structural factors. You're not going to make any headway. I'm hoping that he will listen to the mood music out there and be humble enough to say, we got this tone wrong. For Lord Woolley, hope lies in looking beyond the recent race report. Let's not forget that the tectonic plates of British society were rocked, not just by COVID-19, but by the hundreds of thousands of young men and women, black and white, who marched on our streets demanding change to our institutions. Not just the statues, but the institutions that lay beneath the statues. They demanded a conversation. I think they've been let down by this report. We have to redouble our efforts and know that in the history of racial and social justice, that we mustn't give in. I hope that this report will be seen for what it is, a step backwards, that will be bold enough to rewrite it or write it new again. And above all, give these young people hope that things will change. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Simon Woolley, Lord Woolley of Woodford, the director of Operation Black Vote, Professor Kyandi Andrews, author of The New Age of Empire, and Dr. Mohamed Razai, clinician and academic at St. George's, University of London. The producers today were Leona Hamid and Chris Hemmings. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch. Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.